Hey, it's Brian. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is proud to be a part of Louder Than Life Music Festival once again. We had a great time there in 2023. We sent some of you there in 2023. And now, yeah, we're going to do it. And I know it seems, wow, we're talking about this this early in the year. Yeah, this is the thing you schedule your whole year around. It's that big. The lineup is huge. It drops. It's about to drop. It's dropping. Check the links in the show notes. Make sure you check out and just go ahead and circle. And you'll probably run out of ink circling all the bands you want to see. But go ahead and circle and make that hit list. And then send us an email. We are the story guys at gmail.com. Tell us a, a tale about you at a music festival. Something for real. Something that happened to you. But you know, we tell stories around here. So we want to hear your music festival story. Tell us your favorite music festival story. And you could win passes to Louder Than Live 2024. Oh my God. September it is going to be one to write home about. Go ahead, do it now. Check out the lineup in the show notes and then send us an email. We are the story guys at gmail.com. Tell us your music festival story and get in the running to win tickets now. Rock and roll bedtime stories is on. Don't go to sleep, mother. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Dos? You lose half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories, everybody. Recently on the show, we decided to finally tackle the death of Dimebag Daryl. Not something we were really wanting to do, but it definitely felt like something we needed to do. That was the murder on stage, of course. That happened in December of 2004. And we noted during that episode that it feels like when you mention that story, you have to sort of put it in context of what had happened in a similarly sized rock club roughly just 20 months before that in Rhode Island. And per usual, you sent a letter. It came to wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. And this letter came from Andrew. This is amazing. Uh, Andrew writes, In the late 90s, my then-girlfriend, now wife, moved back to Rhode Island from California, and I followed her. I got a commuter job in Connecticut and found myself listening to classic rock radio for hours most days while driving and sometimes trying to win their call-in contests. One day, not too long after Christmas in the early 2000s, I got lucky and was awarded on-air with a pair of concert tickets. But when the week of the show rolled around, my girlfriend didn't want to go, and I couldn't find a friend to attend. I didn't even pick up the tickets from the radio station. The date of the show was February 20th, 2003. The band was Great White. The venue was the Station Nightclub. If things had gone just a little differently, I would have been there. I thought of all this while listening to your podcast recently, and I thought you'd be interested in this story. Thanks for your great work. Andrew, first, we're glad you made it. Oh glad you're God, here. God, seriously? With this letter. And gosh, I can't imagine some, like that you almost went to the show. And as Brian and I know from having a job being In those radio, people, right. giving away those tickets, that following Monday, going into work and being like, oh. Having those tickets. I, well, someone yeah. Didn't pick up. Someone didn't pick up. Like, we would go to the prize closet and be like, or we would go to the prize closet the weekend before and hand them to friends or something, right? But the yeah. it, here's the other crazy thing about this, and I don't know for sure, but, you know, there is a radio DJ that hosts the show that night at the club. And yeah. He, he dies in the fire. It, it, yeah. So Andrew might have won them from the guy who, I believe, Metal Mike or something. We'll get to that in a, in a bit. But yeah. so... Do you have any stories like this where you missed it by just this much? I mean, good or bad. Not necessarily almost died in a fire, but... Yes. I had a very good friend who I... As a songwriter, I really liked. And I went to, like, every show. And I missed this one show. And 
I just didn't go. I don't know what happened. And I went to this party afterwards and everyone coming to the party went to the show, but me. And I guess he had taken a whole bunch of acid and freaked out. And, and it was like the worst show in the history. of the universe. <laughs> And people like left during the show. It's like, for me, kind of, it's like, I kind of wish I'd seen it. So I've seen the meltdown, but no, I'm glad I missed it. But yeah. no, I, I never, I got very fortunate. I've never missed any sliding doors scenario like that. Not, nothing. Yeah, I've not had anything that crazy like Andrew's, right? I mean, I had one of the famous stories that I'm pretty sure I've told before is that on September 11th of 2001, I was planning to go see a band play at a tiny club in the college town I was living in. And decided not to go for obvious reasons. It was just a weird day, right? And that band was the White Stripes. What I heard was that they played to about 45 people. So that would have been awesome. Uh, I didn't do that. Also, I missed Frightened Rabbit every time they came to town. I had multiple times that I gave up Frightened Rabbit tickets and never got to see Scott before he passed, which was sad. But again, not the same. Obviously, we're heading to something very disastrous. A day in 2003. It's a story that reads part rock and roll tragedy, part true crime, part... People are stupid. But before we get there, I think it's important to spend some time unpacking not just who this band is, but also the guy at the center of it, who, well, who sort of gets cast at the center of it and maybe isn't really yeah. the guy at the center of it. His name's Jack Russell. I do think about the dog when I hear his name. Mm-hmm. And then I think of Jack Russell's Great White, yeah, which uh-huh. is an act, right? The guy who might get the short end of the stick really in this is is mark kendall he's the guitar player who meets jack russell back in 1977 and invites him to join a band with him yeah it's really his band and and this guy mark kendall is crazy about guitar and this is a great quote i found I, i was a huge guitar fan as a teenager i was going from guitar player to guitar player it started out that carlos santana was the greatest player i've ever heard in my life and i love like how he says this right like because we all i remember discovering music this way too right and you go through this artist by artist you're like this is the best thing i've ever heard and then you're like no this is the best thing i've ever heard And he says carlos was the greatest guitar player i'd ever heard in my life i wanted to be him and then i jumped up to guys like johnny winter alvin lee and billy gibbons and mark is playing five nights a week in cover bands and he starts hearing stories about this local kid who's been playing yard parties apparently he has this amazing voice and when you said kid, kid right? yeah you are not kidding uh when mark hears about him he's like 16 but jack russell's been playing in band since he was 11 he's got these strict parents and there seems that there was no better way for him to rebel than with rock and roll and drugs so as a young teenager he's both playing music way above his weight class and doing an amount of drugs that was definitely not what he was equipped to handle yeah and he's floating from band to band of older guys who will have him and put up with his drugs, which most won't deal with for very long. Nope. So he does actually end up taking gigs in people's backyards, really. And it's that reputation coupled with the fact that his voice is amazing in that setting that puts him on Mark Kendall's radar. Do, do you ever play in people's backyards? Do you ever take gigs? I had a band in high school, and we I was moving, and so we had to break up officially. And our last show was in our drummer's backyard. And the cops came more than once, I think. <laughs> I didn't play, but I threw parties or I attended those parties. Yeah. And I told you the one about the dentist office and the dentist office parking lot. No, That's what? I don't think so. I had a record label, me and a buddy's. Right, right, right. Some pals. Yeah. And then we were going to play. They lived underneath a dentist office. Total truth. Crazy. This isn't so, the chair story, right? Where you throw the chair? Uh, no. Okay. God. Okay. <laughs> 
it's so funny. It's that that somehow is that that somehow has a connection to the story. If you actually know what, what I'm talking about, no, but um, we're going to throw this uh, band party and we're going to do it in the parking lot. So the guys who are in the band were in a fraternity. They got these pledges to build a stage out in the middle of the parking lot. Cops show up, and I don't know why I'm the ambassador, but I went out and I was like, "Officer, hey, I'm sorry. Well, you want us to turn it down or turn it off?" And he said, nope, we can smell the marijuana from out here on the street. So if you boys would just take it all inside, that'll take care of, you know, basically go inside. Um, and I was like, and I remember like, you got it. And it's like, that's right, officer. I'm a master negotiator. All- I'm so good at this job. <laughs> We're going to take all this weed underneath this <laughs> dentist office with our... <laughs> And what a weird place to have a band party in, in our like it was their apartment. <laughs> oh man! Oh, so okay. So to talk about great white at any great length, we have to do what we do often in this show and consult one of our cortex. We've got to go to nothing but a good time. The uncensored history of the '80s hard rock explosion. That's the oral history compiled by friends of the show, Tom Bajor and Richard Beanstock. And man, there is some good stuff in this book about Great White. So I will pick up where Jack Russell and Mark Kendall decide to start a band together in the late 70s. And that's where Mark says three or four months after that, Jack got in a lot of trouble and was sentenced to eight years in prison. (laughs) It is jarring when you're reading it because you're like, oh, I'm getting the beginning of the band. And then it's just Jack goes to jail. So that's two, two, that's like, that's two terms of being a president. Yeah. So in the book, Jack tells this whole story from his perspective, and he includes a preface statement trying to make clear that he's not trying to sound cool. Uh, He just wants people to understand the drugs are bad. So you can check it out if you want. Grab, you should own this book by now if you're this many episodes into this show. But we'll attempt to give you the Cliff's Notes. Jack was into Coke and came Mm -hmm. up with this way of getting it for free, and that involved him and a friend holding up (laughs) low-level drug dealers at gunpoint's but with no actual bullet in the chamber. This is this is so, a really bad plan. It's like, and I guess yeah. it worked for a while because he says they did it a lot, except once. There was this time. <laughs> you want to tell the story? So he 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 agreed. There's one time that he does it, and he literally says when he tells this story that to get in the mood, he decides that before they go, and he's doing it with a different guy. Like normally, it's like. His one friend. That guy's not available for the, the stick up. And so he calls this other guy and he's like, oh, if you're nervous, let's just do some PCP before we go do this. And so he ends up blacking out. And he says when he tells the story that everything else in the story that he's telling is definitely true because it's in the police report because he doesn't remember anything that yeah. happens. But apparently he, he ends up in the backyard of some rich people and he chases a maid into a bathroom and shoots through the door and ends up the bullet hits a necklace she was wearing and then ricochets into her shoulder. So basically probably would have killed her, but hit just right, went into her shoulder. That saves her life. And he is just out of his mind. Save your love for me. So Mark Kendall says he finds out from a newspaper headline and just assumes <laughs> it can't be the same Jack Russell Terrier, right? So imagine starting a band with a guy and six weeks and happening to see this dingbat has almost murdered someone. What's more amazing is that they still end up in a band together. 
And that is what rock and roll is about. But not at first. So Jack gets sentenced to something like eight years and Mark tries to move on. But his team members get getting poached in the L.A. music scene. And then Jack gets out right through some clerical error and bizarre set of circumstances somehow in 11 months. And when he hears that Mark still needs a singer, he asks if he can re-audition. And they take a band vote. And Jack gets readmitted two to one. And at this time, they aren't called Great White. You might remember they were going by the name Dante Fox. And man, I wish I could wake up tomorrow and be called Dante Fox. I wish that was my name <laughs> during meetings. So while this band <laughs> often gets associated with Jack Russell due to his personality. I'm just talking about picturing you at a meeting. And someone's like... Yes, uh, Mr. Fox. Dante? Dante Fox? I'm yeah. sorry. Uh, we want, we're now going to see a presentation from Dante Fox. <laughs> but the new name, Great White, it comes from Mark Kendall. He actually is the person who christens them that name. Well, he actually doesn't christen them that. He just gets called that by a kid outside of a show. And oh, that's right. The yeah. directive Whoops. to name the band that comes from Alan Niven, who's managing them in the early days. You might remember this guy because he has some proven success. He helps Motley Crue through their first record. And Mark Kendall had this long white blonde hair. He loved wearing all white. He played a white Fender. And so literally this kid like outside the venue is like, oh, like, you know, tags his friend on the shoulder and is like, look, it's great white. And that's what he calls them. And so they're like, that's not only a great nickname, that's a great name for the band. And Niven is an interesting character to discuss in their career because he builds this band the old school way. He harasses radio and builds them locally inside the oversaturated LA scene before they ever have a deal, right? So, and of course, to connect this episode to other recent discussions after this just if you are a listener, he manages GNR all the way up to right before the infamous user illusion tour that we talked about just a few episodes ago. And after this build, they get signed by EMI. They release a debut in 84, and they spend the next few years supporting Judas Priest, White Snake, and your boys Kiss out on the road. Yeah, and the first record sounds a lot different than the later output, and most people know them as very bluesy. They... They do Zeppelin covers and do like a kind of spot on, really. I mean, they're excellent, right? But there's an interview in the show notes where Mark Kendall's asked what made them veer from metal to like the bluesier rock sound, which most people are familiar with. And he says, quote, we were doing that first album and in between takes, I was noodling around playing stuff like I'm going home by Alvin Lee and all this blue stuff. And our manager said, you should be doing that. That sounds way more natural. And I was like, really? You mean I can do what I want? Which is kind of funny <laughs> to think about, I guess, in the 80s. Well, and this proves to be the thing that helps them break. That second record is called Shot in the Dark. But in 87, they drop a record called Once Bitten and follow it up in 89 with a record appropriately called Twice Shy. And here in the in-between, in that era, between those two records, this era where even bands like Winger are getting a good shot at the big time, Great White gets to share the stage with every band imaginable, pretty much. Just read a list of the bands that it that they're touring with and playing with. GNR, Twisted Sister, White Snake, David Lee Roth, TNT, and they'll be on the European Monsters Rock Tour with Kiss, Iron Maiden, Megadeth, Halloween, Anthrax, and Testament. And 
twice shy got nominated but for nominated for a freaking Grammy, which suck on that. That's totally bizarre, right? Have we ever talked about Halloween on this show before? <clears throat> no, but I am the man to talk to you about Halloween. <laughs> I, I know. That's why I was like, dude, I can't believe you you are not we, taking the bait. So I'm we, giving we, it to you on a plate. We 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 haven't, and I'm married to someone that is from Europe, and I mentioned Halloween one time, and she said, they're like Nazis, right? And I was like, what do you mean? And she was like, give me song names. And I was like, Eagle Fly Free? And she goes, uh-huh, keep going. And, <laughs> and so I have no idea, but I guess there's... I guess there's some of that type of imagery or, or stuff in the lyrical content or whatever that I never thought about. But like their live shows sounded, they sound like people sing along quite loudly to all of those words. <laughs> sound a little bit like a political rally. Uh, okay. So on that second record, back to Great White, they moved from EMI to Capitol and they're going to stay there until 93. But by then, their sounds just less popular. I mean, this is what happens to a lot of bands from that same era, right? And they're putting out music on this British indie label, and they aren't drawing like they did. But interestingly, they actually stay together in, in somewhat of their original form or something close to it all the way through the 90s. Right. Things get rocky in January of 2000 because Mark Kendall says he's taking a personal hiatus, which leaves Jack in charge. Now, over the next year and a half, there is some infighting as Jack allegedly allegedly fires two of the other three guys, continues to tour then. By the end of 2001, Jack announces that the band is officially going to break up. But there's a problem, because Jack and Mark don't find much immediate success once Great White is gone. And it doesn't take long for them to get a little anxious about that. So by the end of 2002, they're back to touring together, and this time they're going out as Jack Russell's Great White, but Mark Kendall is in the band. But the deal is they're playing mostly Great White songs, and then they do some of Jack's solo stuff. And that brings us to Rhode Island, February 2003. Okay, so before we get to what actually happens in Rhode Island, we need to dip back into history for a couple of nightclub tragedies. We've got to set the scene here for sort of the history of badly run catastrophic nightclub incidences. And there are a couple here. One of them will be important in the footnotes in the aftermath of what happens on this night in 2003. And that one is the one that happens in 1942 in Boston at a club called Coconut Grove. Yeah. And it's the worst. It's the deadliest nightclub fire in history. 492 people died that night. There's a lot to the story. The nightclub owner is heavily connected to the mob. Imagine that. (laughs) Forget about it. And the establishment was not keeping themselves up to code. As you can imagine, the year is 1942. But they're still getting a pass from the inspectors. Because of the mob. I mean, that's heavily – anything you read about this, it's heavily inferred that the mob was writing all that off. And to keep people from sneaking in that weekend, all the exit doors and windows were locked and blocked and made it impossible for people to get out just a nightmare over and all. And so it's noteworthy to this story because it's East coast, right? So it's relatively close to Rhode Island and it's part of new England. And so it's referenced as being one of the only instances of a fire that was worse than what happens with great white. But it's also noteworthy because when something like that happens, it brings scrutiny and it changes laws. We're going to see this through every example we talk about and when we talk about what happens in the aftermath of the incident with Great White. And so 
In this case, flammable decorations. You're not doing those anymore, right? They have like a bunch of palm trees made out of some weird plastic or something that just went straight up in flames. None of that. There's also new standards for exits, emergency exits, all that sort of stuff. And part of the reason this all goes down is unique to the wartime setting, too. Mm -hmm. The fire Mm -hmm. moves really fast because the club couldn't get free on due to the war. So the air conditioning system was being run by a highly flammable substitute. And you said this fire moved fast, right? It moved so fast that they recover bodies of people who burned to death, still sitting at tables and holding a drink. Gosh. So this obviously becomes a major cautionary tale among nightclub owners for decades and decades. But there is a different story that was on the minds of those in Rhode Island in February of 2003 because there is a story of what happened in Chicago at the E2 nightclub three days before what happened in Rhode Island. It's wild that these things happen so close together. It's one of the largest rock and roll music festivals in the country, and we've got your tickets. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is sending you back. We're sending you again to Louder Than Life Music Festival, and we're, you know, we want you to have plenty of time to plan. So as they drop the lineup, we're dropping wristbands. They could be yours, and all you have to do is send us an email. It's wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. That's simple. Send us the email and tell us your best, favorite, funniest, weirdest, I don't know, just tell us something about you at a music festival, because we tell stories on this podcast. We're about telling stories, so keep telling stories, and in the meantime, grab yourself some wristbands to Louder Than Live 2024, four days of music in Louisville, Kentucky. Lineup is huge. Check it out in the show notes. Get ready to rock out with us. Murdoch and I will be there. We'll probably see you. Uh, We just need you to win these wristbands, so go ahead. Take care of it. Send us an email. We are the story guys at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Now, it's not a fire in Chicago. It's a fight. It's a fight that gets broken up by club security, and the club security uses pepper spray. But a few folks near the commotion have a really bad reaction. They start vomiting. One of them faints, and this causes a chain reaction of people freaking out and thinking that something nefarious is going down. So this is 2003. We're not very severed from September 11th. So there's this constant fear of things bubbling up or something bad happening or a terrorist activity or getting anthrax in the mail or anything. So when people start vomiting and fainting, people start basically trying to get out really fast. And this, of course, causes a stampede. So 1,500 people try to leave all at once. 21 people suffocate and die. And again, there's a lot of speculation in this case about fire codes, about how the doors are locked or unlocked or kept up or not kept, violations, procedures, all that stuff. It's a big enough deal in the immediate aftermath to get the attention of, I would assume, news directors across the country, but a specific one at a TV station in Providence, Providence, Rhode Island. And a day or two later, he will assign a story to a new reporter at the station. And the story is, we want to know how local nightclubs around Rhode Island are handling how they let people in and out. And, you know, are they up to code? And the reporter's name is Jeffrey Dederian. And he started reporting in Providence years before mostly about local government corruption, which is a whole different podcast. <laughs> you get somewhere else. Well, seriously, Rhode and- Island government corruption. Just go to whatever your podcasting app is after you're done listening to our show. And I forget who it is, but there is a whole series on it. Oh, yeah. And it's made enough of a name of itself that he, he gets a job 
at a legendary station in Boston. And he does it for a while. He stays in Boston as a reporter, away from his hometown. But in 2003, he's getting to that point in his life where he feels he wants to make a strategic move, right? He calls back to Providence to see if he can make a deal to transition into an anchor position instead of being a reporter, right? So once you, this is the thing about, and it's not so much this way anymore in the media landscape, but back in the day, anchors, that was the end. That was where you finished your career. So you didn't want to settle down and be an anchor in any size market until you were sort of done being a reporter. So he decides he wants to move into that phase and go back to his small hometown, be back probably around family, spend more time with his kids, all that sort of stuff. But he's got another reason to go back to this hometown. And that is because... In this hometown, he had accidentally bought a nightclub. Yep, and it all started because he wanted to go into business with his entrepreneur brother and diversify his income. They tried to buy a laundromat. These are unusual things for me to think about. <laughs> diversify. I would just go into drugs directly versus laundromat. It's like, this seems like a lot of freaking work. Wouldn't you only buy the laundromat to launder the money for the drugs? I'm so confused. Maybe that, or like have a cheesesteak uh, uh, truck out in front of your laundromat. <laughs> anyway, but they tried to buy the laundromat. That deal fell through at the last minute. So they found a friggin' ad for the station nightclub in the summer of 2000, and they decided to buy that and give it a try. Now, on this particular night in February of 2003, Almost three years later, the brothers are on the verge of getting rid of this nightclub. So their ownership is about to be over. They're, they want to be done with the place. It's hard, right? So they just agreed to this sale. But Jeffrey's on the hook with his other job, his day job. He's got to finish this news story about club safety. And they have all this coverage from all these other venues around Rhode Island, but they don't have any B-roll. And so B-roll is just the cover stuff while people are talking that shows people doing the thing you're talking about. So basically, they need just shots of people at a nightclub. At a nightclub. And so they're like, where are we going to get that? And then I'm sure someone's like, hey, dude, don't you own the station? Isn't Great White playing at the station? And so that's how Brian Butler, a cameraman, a co-worker of Jeffrey's, ends up with a giant video camera on his shoulder that night at the station nightclub. And there's another small detail here that makes it very important the story, and that is when the brothers took over the venue, they kept getting noise complaints. Local neighbors were pissed at how loud it would get. So the guys find a cheap and easy solution. They soundproof by spraying acoustic foam into the walls and on the ceiling. Uh-oh. That shit is flammable. That shit is flammable. Now, there's been a lot of reporting and a lot of recounting of this event. And you're going to quickly find three books on the subject, right? And they all have terrible puns for names. Trial by Fire by the journalist Scott James. From the Ashes by survivor Gina Russo. And Killer Show by a lawyer named John Berrylick. And he becomes involved in wrongful death cases after the incident. Now, they're actually pretty interesting compliments because they're written from three distinct viewpoints in terms of how they relate to the evening. So if you want to go really deep, you can find links to all these books in the show notes. And by the way, Trial by Fire, great song by Testament. But for our purposes, (laughs) we're going to try to give you the basics of what transpires that night. After 11 p.m., Great White goes on stage and their tour manager is backstage ready to implement a little party trick. The term is GURB. Are you familiar with that term? 
<clears throat> only because of the gerbing that happens here. I didn't. I'd never heard it before. So it's a type of firework. It produces a jet of sparks. Okay, it's like a big overgrown sparkler kind of. It's basically just a long tube, and it narrows at the top and pushes sparks out. Now, often referred to as a spark fountain, these things had been a point of contention for this whole run of the tour. Think about it like Great White. They used to play arenas. They played Monsters of Rock tour across Europe. They played for tens of thousands of people, and now they're in a 400-capacity club in a rundown Rhode Island town. They're all in their 40s. But they have a tour manager named Daniel Bichelle, who is 26 years old. And at some point, they decide to use Gerbs on this club tour. I don't know if that was his idea, their idea, what. But it's just plain not safe. I can't imagine. When I heard the capacity of this club at 400, and I think about 400 capacity clubs that I frequent, I cannot imagine any sort of pyro or firework being set off in those venues. And now it wouldn't happen because of this, right? When I was 26, though, I would have done something dumb like this. If I was touring with guys who were 15 to 20 years older than me, and I thought they were probably pretty cool because they had had some success, and it's, you know, it's it's Jack and Mark. It's not like a, a fake version of this band. And we're trying to think of how to really wow the audience in a cheap and easy way. I can see how your brain says, let's set off fireworks indoors. I saw uh, this band called the Impotent Sea Snakes, and I don't want to discuss their subject matter here. Um, <laughs> just not appropriate for any podcast. But I saw them in a club, and the capacity of that club was 197. And, and they had a concussion bomb. That, oh, my like, God. Like the thing that you would see in an arena. I saw like the big, like. Oh, you know what? I saw Power Man 5000 at a club, and you were the opening act. <laughs> I was one of the opening acts, yeah. And it was before I knew you. It was literally the first time I ever saw you in public, and I was like, who is that guy playing bass? Anyway, we've talked about this before. <laughs> yeah. Little did we know we would become best friends and hetero life mates. But so weird. Uh, I remember that show. I, they didn't do pyro, but I remember the production element and the feeling of that show was like, this show is way too big to be in this room. Like it, like they, and they were doing that on purpose and it was, it was a compliment to them. It was very cool. Cause they clearly had been sort of in the same situation where they had been playing arenas and big venues. And then, you know, they're four or five years out of that height of their career with the one big hit. And now they're, you know, playing 600 capacity clubs. But that was, that's what this made me think of was the closest I've ever seen that in person is when I saw power man 5,000 play a, a small club and the crowd, they hated us, right? Did the crowd hate us? I don't remember them hating you. I was very distracted by your enthusiasm playing bass. Like, I like just <laughs> really liked it. Because that's... Enthusiasm is my favorite thing. And I was like, this guy is like... He's in a different band than everybody else. And it's great. Yeah. I was in a different band than everybody else. Uh, <laughs> that was not the thing. Um, okay. So, the band... Oh, wait. So, whether or not they had permission, Daniel Bichelle lights four gerbs during the very first song, which is Desert Moon, and there are flames. So this had been a whole thing at the dates beforehand about whether or not they were even oh, yeah. allowed to be doing this. So two days after the tragedy in Rhode Island, the Associated Press gets a hold of this story. The Great White had not been asking permission at most venues to use these. Now, I just produced a show in Cincinnati, and we were using some production elements, nothing like this. And I had to ask, hey, can we use this? And the guy was like, yes, but I'm really glad you told me because we have all these sprinkler systems in 
the ceiling and that will set them off. So you have, I have to go turn those off before you use, and we were just using fog machines, right? But that's how much this has changed, which we're going to get into in a minute about sprinkler systems and the, the infrastructure inside buildings and building code and all that sort of stuff. But they, they had been doing this and not asking permission in Florida, in Pennsylvania, and at the legendary Stone Pony in New Jersey. The band yeah. and their management company insist that on the night in Rhode Island that they had gotten permission. But this story breaking in the Associated Press really upsets people and does them does no favors for them in the aftermath of this, right? It's, it's almost like it got scraped up. And now, as everybody's looking for somebody to blame, they're going, well, you might blame these guys because they clearly had a track record of doing this without the proper authority. And that cameraman that was there to get B-roll, this is how he describes the scene to CNN that week. Brian, you want to read that? It was that fast. As soon as the pyrotechnics stopped, the flame had started on the egg crate backing behind the stage, and it just went up the ceiling. And people stood and watched it, and some people backed off. And when I turned around, some people were already trying to leave, and others were just sitting there going, yeah, that's great. And I remember that statement because I was like, no, that is not great. This is the time to leave. At first, there was no panic. Everybody just kind of turned. Most people still stood there. In the other rooms, the smoke hadn't gotten to them. The flame wasn't bad. They didn't think anything of it. Well, I guess once we all started to turn toward the door and we got bottlenecked into the front door, people just kept pushing and eventually people would pop out of the door including myself. That's when I turned back. I went around back. There was no one coming out of the back door anymore. I kicked out a side window to try to get people out of there. One guy did crawl out. I went back around the front again, and that's when you saw people stacked on top of each other trying to get out of the front door. And by then, the black smoke was pouring out over their heads. So 96 people die at the scene. 96 people. And four die later at a hospital, so it's 100. Ty Longley, who is playing guitar for Great White, will die. The radio DJ who is hosting dies. Mm-hmm. And members of one of the opening bands die. And then on top of that, remember we said it's 400 people capacity. 230 people are injured. So, so what went wrong? I mean, obviously there's some obvious things that went wrong, right? But there's lots of other things that went wrong, too. The soundproofing, the pyro combo, that was bad. And that's what causes it. But there should have been, in most cases, things to, you know, like fail safes. There should have been things that would have stopped this from getting fully out of control. But there were a lot of additional bad decisions that on their own would have been negligible, but piled on top of each other become incredibly tragic. First, the club was oversold. They just kept letting people in. Depending on how the club was set up, the absolute max technically allowed in that place was 402 most nights it was 250 or something but they there was a way that they could arrange pool tables or move them out or something to get more people in so as you know it looked like they were selling tickets to great white people were getting excited about it they decided to try to hit this 400 number so 402 now every report after this tragedy says that there were 460 people in the club at the time of the fire yeah no sprinklers by the way There's an investigation by NIST, N-I-S-T, which is the National Institute of Standards and Technology, after that goes down where they try to establish what kind of difference a sprinkler system would have made. The conclusion is that it would have most likely allowed everyone enough time to get out safely, but the station was built in 1946 as a restaurant and was exempt from a sprinkler requirement in that state fire code 
through a grandfather clause, which stated that buildings constructed before 1976 were not required to have a sprinkler system. When it got converted into a nightclub, this should have been changed and a sprinkler system should have been required. And so this leads to the second place that a whole lot of fingers get pointed in the aftermath of everything. And that's at the two brothers who own the station. We've already talked about one of them. You and I have worked with a lot of music venues over the years. It's a tough gig. There's never enough money, and it's very tempting to cut corners. And there is blame to be cast on the fire marshal, too. The West Warwick fire marshal had conducted two fire inspections of the station nightclub in the months preceding the event. During the first inspection, nine minor code violations were found. They were apparently remedied. The second time around, the nightclub got a clean bill of health, but the fire marshal never detected the presence of this foam, which was against code. And on top of all of this, there's just panic and chaos to blame, right? The club actually had four exits. But the natural thing you do when you go in a venue or any sort of building and then wow. you're asked to leave is you go out the door you came in. This is the natural thing that you are inclined to do. And so that's what everyone tries to do. In the state of panic, they're not thinking about where else can I get out. And that's where you get that bottleneck. And this can't be overstated how fast this all happens. Here's a timeline to give you an idea. 20 seconds after the pyrotechnics ended, the band stopped playing and lead singer Jack Russell calmly remarked into the microphone, wow, that's not good. Within 40 seconds of the ignition, Great White had stopped playing and left the stage and the venue's fire alarm began to sound, but it was not connected to the local fire department. By 60 seconds, you have thick black smoke filling the venue. The fire spreads throughout the building and was completely engulfed within six minutes of the pyrotechnic ignition. So what happens in the aftermath of all this? Let's tackle this in three sections, right? The legal recourse, the legal legacy, and then the what the hell happened to the band members themselves, namely Jack Russell and Mark Kendall. Yep. On December 9th, same year, 2003, a grand jury announced indictments against the station owners, Jeffrey and Michael, and Great White Road Manager, Daniel Bichel. The three were each charged with 100 counts of involuntary manslaughter with criminal negligence and 100 counts of involuntary manslaughter in violation of a misdemeanor not charged the West Warwick Fire Marshal and Jack Russell. There's a really good piece in the show notes. If you want to get into how this all breaks down, how the charges break down, there's a lawyer who reviewed it on an NPR station recently, like sort of the anniversary of this event, um, <clears throat> and talked through how the charges came out and why they came out that way, etc. And it's a really interesting read to, to give you a little more insight into this. But here's what you need to know about how this affects people. The tour manager, especially Daniel Bichelle, 26 year old guy. He's way over his head. This wrecks him, right? Just wrecks him. He and Michael, the non reporter brother, they get the same sentence, 15 years in prison with four to serve and 11 years suspended plus three years probation. And they both end up getting out early. The other brother gets 500 hours of community service. Now, I read that the brothers were charged based on how much involvement they had with the decision to, with the foam installation. So, like, one thing I read said basically, like, that was Michael's decision 
in the day-to-day operation of the club, and so mm. they gave him the jail sentence. But I read in one of the books on this subject, I think it was the journalist book, he says that the brothers actually got to choose which brother went to prison, which is a whole podcast episode in itself. Yeah, <laughs> like that's, I have a brother, and if my brother and I got in trouble <laughs> with the law, and then we had to sit in a room and decide in front of a judge which one of us voluntarily was going to take going to take the jail time, yeah, not sure how did. that would go. Not sure how that yeah. would go. As for what this incident means to the future of nightclubs and concerts. There are a lot of changes in fire code and a lot of changes in attitudes towards pyro when a band is not in a big venue. Plus, most nightclubs start putting in sprinkler systems and it becomes required for places with more than 100 occupants to have a sprinkler system. And finally, as you might imagine... The guys in the band, Jack and Mark Kendall, they, they're never really quite the same. And I don't think their relationship was really ever quite the same. I don't think their relationship was ever really great. I mean, they, there's a little bit of a frenemy quality to it throughout its existence. They consider breaking up. And then they decide that maybe they can do a benefit tour. And so they do a benefit tour for the victims. But eventually, the guys end up splitting into two versions of the band. Both still exist. So if you're going to go see Gray White... Look to see which version you're going to see. You're either going to see Great White, which is Mark Kendall, or you're going to see Jack Russell's Great White, which is Jack Russell. And right. part of part of the beef, and I mean, I don't know how much this plays into the actual splitting, but Jack Russell continues to sort of quasi-exploit the tragedy for a while, and it, it starts yeah. to piss off the victim families and the associations that are set up around those victim families for 10 years, both bands will retire the song desert moon. Cause that's what they're playing during the tragedy. But by 2013, Jack brings it back and his version of the band is, is playing it actively again. And he's just put out another album in the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, and like I said, whatever the, the, Great white record is where they do the Zeppelin covers. It's really great. Yeah, so there's actually two. So there's one in the end of the yeah. '90s, and then they just put out a sequel to it. Like in the last, that may be the album that came out in the last few years, where they did another yeah. set of Zeppelin covers. My great white favorite great white song is "All Over Now," which is a deep cut. Oh, I used to like "Save Your Love." I used to like that one too, the acoustic one. Mm, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that was when I was. Uh, like I must have had a mullet at that point, and I really wanted to have a girlfriend, but didn't understand that I had a mullet, and that was going <laughs> to keep me from having a girlfriend to listen to that song, make out in El Camino. Uh, so that song for me was Firehouse Love of a Lifetime. Oh, man, what yeah. a great song! Yeah, that was that was my I want a girlfriend song. I was all of like eleven. It was not appropriate, but I I feel it. I'm just saying I relate. Uh, if you relate to any of this or you have anything to add, we'd like to hear from you. We are the Story Guys at Gmail dot com. And if you have a story you'd like us to look into, if there's a, a rumor. Uh, if there is a news story that you've never really understood, or maybe like this one, uh, we'd love to do the research and get to the bottom of it for you. Uh, we are the story guys at gmail.com. And you can support the show because it does take a little bit of work to pull this thing off. Patreon.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories. That's an easy way to do that where you'll get outtakes 
etc. Uh, you'll get extra bonus episodes. You get a weekly newsletter, uh, easy access to us. Send us messages through the app. Um, it's uh, it's a fun time, and it's only five or ten bucks a month. Your decision. Patreon.com slash Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories, and we greatly appreciate it. Uh, I gotta ask Murdoch. Until next time, what should people keep doing? Keep telling stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.